Welcome to the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Mike Kresnick, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Coromdeo Church and Pastor Chris Hummelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're talking about intersectionality. Inter-what? That's right, friends and listeners. This is a educational, inform you of the latest social craze kind of podcast. This is one of those, we, we want to do this topic not because you are going to encounter this at your workplace next week, but because it is very prevalent on college campuses right now. And the way our culture works, it has a way of filtering down into popular media and sort of our everyday lives. And so sometimes as Christians who are trying to live an informed life and trying to ask, how does the gospel speak to the issues going on in our society? It's wise to pay attention to things going on on the college campus, especially in the academic world, because they have a way of sort of framing up what's about to happen uh, in the next few years in the broader culture. So intersectionality. Um, We're reading or basing this podcast on an article in New York Magazine by Andrew Sullivan. Um, that sort of frames this up. And and here's the precipitating event. About a month ago, a little over a month ago, uh, Charles Murray was invited to speak at Middlebury College. You've probably seen this in the news. Charles Murray is a a, a conservative sociologist. I guess he's probably a libertarian, to be more accurate. Um, And was invited to come to Middlebury College in Vermont and give a series of lectures. Um, Invited by a liberal professor there who disagrees with his views but wanted to create a, a fruitful debate. Um, some students at Middlebury um, created this huge sort of protest mob scene actually resulted in the professor who invited Murray being hospitalized with a concussion because it turned violent. It was just a a debacle. And um, Andrew Sullivan, the next week after that, in reflecting on what happened, wrote this article for the New Yorker. Now, Andrew Sullivan, by the way, was one of the first sort of conservative bloggers, political bloggers. He's He would not identify as a political conservative now. He's just a really interesting figure, but well known in sort of political circles. He's a very gifted writer. He's educated at Oxford and Harvard, so has a, a pretty um, intellectual pedigree. And he writes in this New Yorker article about intersectionality. And I'm just going to quote a few paragraphs so that we can set up what is intersectional? What is this that we're about to talk about? And then again, our goal here is just to inform listeners and help uh, help us understand a little bit of why this is important in our culture. Intersectionality, says Andrew Sullivan in the New York Magazine, is the latest academic craze sweeping the American Academy. On the surface, it's a recent neo-Marxist theory that argues that social oppression does not simply apply to single categories of identity, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, class, etc., but to all of them in an interlocking system of hierarchy and power. It is operating, in Orwell's words, as a smelly little orthodoxy, and it manifests itself, it seems to me, almost as a religion. It posits a classic orthodoxy through which all of human experience is explained, and through which all speech must be filtered. Its version of original sin is the power of some identity groups over others. To overcome this sin, you need first to confess, 
i.e. check your privilege, and subsequently live your life and order your thoughts in a way that keeps this sin at bay. The sin goes so deep into your psyche, especially if you are white or male or straight, that a profound conversion is required. Like the Puritanism once familiar in New England, intersectionality controls language and the very terms of discourse. It enforces manners. It has an idea of virtue and is obsessed with upholding it. The saints are the most oppressed who nonetheless resist. The sinners are categorized in various ascending categories of demographic damnation. The only thing this religion lacks, of course, is salvation. Life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance, ending only in death. It's marks without the final total liberation. It operates as a religion in one other critical dimension. If you happen to see the world in a different way, if you're a liberal or libertarian or even, gasp, a conservative, if you believe that a university is a place where any idea, however loathsome, can be debated and refuted, you are not just wrong, you are immoral. If you think that arguments and ideas can have a life independent of white supremacy, you are complicit in evil. And you are not just complicit, your heresy is a direct threat to others and therefore needs to be extinguished. You can't reason with heresy, you have to ban it. It will contaminate others' souls and wound them irreparably. Sullivan goes on in this article to basically describe how this is what played out at Middlebury College, that the students protesting were committed to this sort of ideology and therefore saw Charles Murray not as a guy whose ideas should be listened to and then debated and refuted and argued about, but as a guy who was basically a heretic for not being, you know, not subscribing to this way of thinking and therefore needed to be sort of shouted down and shunned rather than engaged and argued with. And again, the interesting thing about this is this is really defining a lot of discourse, especially in the academic world. And it's some of the reason why our political discourse and even our debate about things like immigration or about religion or about sexuality is becoming so polarizing. And so why people are less and less prone to be able to listen to each other, even if they disagree. And so the interesting thing that provoked me about reading Sullivan's article is basically <laughs> the idea, he's basically saying, the title of the article is, Is Intersectionality a Religion? Hmm. And what he's saying is it has a virtue, it has saints and sinners, it has original sin, it has all the elements of a traditional religion. And it's fascinating to me to think about that in light of Romans 1, guys, and the fact that like, you know, if we don't worship the creator, sure. we turn away and worship created things. And we're going to find some totalizing narrative, some ideology to give ourselves to. And that seems like what's going on here in this sort of campus uh, frenzy about intersectionality. And it's a, it's a threat to any kind of meaningful discourse. It's a threat to the ability to give and take and listen and argue and debate and discuss. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, Chris, if, if you want to frame up a little bit of, you know, he, he's, he mentions basically it's like a neo-Marxist theory. So it might be helpful to just understand like, what was it about? I mean, we all know Marx. He's like a guy, Karl Marx. And all I know is like, that's why Russia and Soviet Union were bad because... <laughs> They were Marxists, but if, you know, Marxism was really dominant in the campus culture of the sixties and seventies, and it's kind of dwindled away, but this is sort of like the reiteration or the, the, um, resurfacing of it. Can you give a little bit of sort of just 
background of what, what is the, the Marxist way of seeing the world? So intersectionality as an idea is not particularly new. It has been around college campuses and within philosophy and in different modes of thinking for, for a number of decades. Essentially, this is what happened. When, when Karl Marx's views on economics, so his, his writing largely had to do with economics. So if you think of socialism, the, the foundational economics of socialism is Marxism. When the world basically got smart and realized, hey, his economic philosophy doesn't work. It's bunk. It, it, it's a failed economic philosophy for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it sort of was chucked economically, but his views of more kind of philosophy and his anthropology and even some of his theology, quote unquote, uh, started to make its way into things like sociology and psychology and even in gender studies, feminist studies. And so Marxism sort of lived to fight another day and the, all these other academic disciplines. And so the essence of kind of a Marxian worldview is that power struggle is, is the nature. Everything sort of yeah. is, comes back to power. So you have one group in power, another group that uh, is underneath that power, and then there's a consistent battle between these two. And the thing is, is that group in power has multi-faceted ways of, of controlling. It's not just a matter of, I have more guns than you, or I have more money than you, or I'm stronger than you. That there are methods of essentially brainwashing, for lack of a better term, uh, through culture, through politics, through media, uh, through systems and, and ethics that are always going to establish and keep the power structure in play to, for the privileged few. And so for intersectionality, for, for neo-Marxist thought, it's all about unmasking the power in play, unmasking the power in um, you know, male-female relationships, unmasking the power in political relationships, unmasking the power even in family dynamics of, you know, parents and children, unmasking power in what, whatever human interaction you can find, there is a power dynamic. And so it reduces human interaction to this. And so... So really the only way for me to have an identity is to be oppressed in some way, to be like a... You're either in power or you're oppressed. Yeah. And, and so for it to become a religion, as this article is saying, means the, the way I would say it, it's actually been weaponized now. You know, it's not just a nice idea. It's it's so rooted into, you know, at least on college campuses, how people are thinking of themselves that, man, if someone if someone comes forward with an idea that I see as oppressive, well, I've, I got to fight that. Hmm. I got I got to yeah. go at that. That's the, that's the virtue of of intersectionality or of Marxism is the struggle. So if it's a religion, who's the god? Who's that's the a, savior? That's a that's a very good question. Well, Andrew Sullivan says it's a religion without a savior. Mm. Life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance ending only in death. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> well, here, I mean, this is, this is partly what makes it Marxist. It is a collective group of people. Like for Marx, salvation was found in the, the, the those that were oppressed, the people, the commoners, to rise up, the proletariat is the fancy word to use, to rise up and essentially throw off oppression and become this enlightened group of people where everybody was free. And so it's the collective. Mm. The collective is sort of God. And so to, to uh, offend the collective group, the offended group, whether that be along racial lines, economic, gender lines, you're offending God. Mm. Which here's what's interesting about that. I was just reading Leslie Newbigin right before this podcast. And he says... 
all that creates, if you look at history, is the oppressed become the oppressors. Like you just yes, trade places. Right. French Revolution. Yeah. Right there. You just yes. trade places and you now you Nick now you use power to enforce your views. And and that's really what's going on, on campus here, is right? Like these students are saying we're gonna use our power to <laughs> oppress Charles Murray or mm-hmm. to keep him from being able to mm-hmm. speak and ultimately to bring harm or to threaten harm bodily. And what's what's sad is is that what gains somebody the status of saint, as this article points out, is to have this status as I'm oppressed, I'm a victim. And what it what it does is essentially if I if I can I have to maintain my victimhood and my victim status in order to maintain any sort of higher higher moral ground. So there there is actually an incentive to not ever resolve the conflict. Because if I resolve the conflict, I lose my victim status, oppressed status, and then I don't have the higher moral ground anymore. So it's it's a really scary, vicious circle that is created within this this philosophy or this religion. Well, and so Christians should know, if you're a Christian, you're, of course, an oppressor because you believe in an absolute morality. You believe certain things are right and wrong. You believe there's a way people should live. And, doggone it, you've had cultural power for the last thousand years in Western Europe, and so it's time to throw you off. Don't forget the Crusades, too. Oh, yes, of course. Hmm. Um, if we want to, if we want to just quickly sort of apply a gospel lens to this whole conversation, I think we can say the gospel does critique power, right? The, the gospel would say, yeah, yeah, certainly power can become oppressive, and um, the gospel speaks to the need to recognize oppressive power and to um, counteract it. Right, but the counteracting the gospel brings is humility. Right, is sacrifice. It's 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 not <laughs> fighting power with power. It's fighting power with weakness, with humility, with condescension. It's the incarnation. Right, it's God becoming man, and in a sense, through suffering, reversing the order of reality in a way that the uh, the powers actually are sort of subverted and subjugated through suffering. Um, and, and again, I think that's what you see if you look at uh, race relations in America. You look at the black church, right? The, the, the black community through lots of suffering and through nonviolent resistance over years and centuries ultimately saw that whole power structure transformed, mm. but only through a lot of persistence and resistance and faithfulness. Um, but they would say that there's still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's and there was struggle involved in that, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, because people like Martin Luther King Jr. were at the head of that struggle and because they had a biblical, a biblically informed worldview, there there was a way they went about that that was very committed to nonviolence and very mm-hmm. committed to solidarity and, and mm-hmm. communion. Um, it's really interesting to think about how intersectionality is different from that, which basically says you're a bad person if you have any kind of power. My identity is in victimhood. Mm-hmm. You're oppressing me because you're white, Mike, and because you have a beard, and doggone it, white-bearded men have run the world for a long time, and you just are a further reflection of that. You need to be opposed, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. The, the gospel does critique power, but in a different way. The, the, the other thing the gospel, I think, needs to bring to bear here is a sense that um, identity is not identity's found somewhere else, right? Like... It's interesting, as you point out, Chris, that this is really a striving for how can I gain an identity for myself? Well, my identity is oppressed victim. It, what, what creates the power is where I, if I can have the identity that allows me to call you a bad person mm-hmm. or that gives me mm-hmm. some sort of one-up over you. 
Whereas when our identity is rooted in Christ, it frees us to say, okay, well, let's be honest about where power has been misused and where there needs to be repentance. And let's also be honest about I don't get identity by being a victim. Mm-hmm. I'm actually yeah. empowered to embrace agency and to say, where in my life do I need to acknowledge that I've been sinned against or wounded or hurt? And how does that now, acknowledging that and working through that, free me to walk in a new direction and to take responsibility for my own sins and struggles and challenges in life? Yeah, it's it's ironic. Ah, correct use of the word right here. Here it comes, here it comes. It's ironic that a system that claims to value the victim actually offers no healing for the victim. Like to mm-hmm. to to not to, to be perpetually a victim and oppressed means you are never going to experience healing for how you have been legitimately victimized and oppressed. And so the gospel comes in and it's like, Jesus wants to heal you from that and not, not make that the ultimate thing about you where intersectionality is just going to keep you there and never give you a chance to actually be healed and set free. It's also fascinating to me to think about the Anderson basically points out, this is a totalizing narrative. It's a totalizing worldview. And it, it makes me realize when we, when we, all of us have to live with some way of making sense of reality, right? Like we need a worldview that fits the pieces together. And so if I reject the Christian worldview or, you know, other worldviews, this becomes in an atheistic, relativistic, uh, subjective world, a totalizing worldview that can help me establish some grounding and make sense of reality. So it makes sense to me why college, why some college students are drawn to this because it, it gives a way of, it gives a holistic way of thinking about the world. It just is really sad Mm -hmm. that it does lack any sense of healing, hope, restoration, or consummation. And so it sort of pits me in this forever struggle, which I think is the, the hopelessness of the atheistic worldview in the first place. Help me, help me uh, wrestle out some tension here. So we see Jesus being the one who doesn't crush the bruised reed, who doesn't put out the smoldering wick. You know, um, throughout the biblical narrative, we see God's people actually living as victims underneath the empire. You know, we read about that in Revelation. And, but it seems that the church has been used for power, you know, throughout history as well. So how do we, how do we live today by not buying into how the institutions and and structures have abused the church, the gospel for power, but we can actually live as the true church, as the Bible kind of models that and and, and commands us as what Christ commands us to live. Mm -hmm. Here's a simple way of answering Mike. Oppression is an activity. It's an action. I cannot oppress you simply by my existence. Mm. And, and where intersectionality goes wrong is it's my identity. If I am white, if I am male, I have to check my privilege just because I'm male and because men have oppressed women in the world and therefore I'm a part of that class of people. And so though I've never personally oppressed a woman, I have to, I'm guilty for the sins of my identity group, right? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So, so I think where, where the gospel frees us is to say, yes, the church has been used in oppressive ways. And we, sh- and we as Christians have the freedom to say, yep, we've done wrong there. Our, we and our fathers have sinned, to yeah. use the words of Nehemiah. Um, so we can acknowledge that, which is different than saying, Chris, but right now, because you're a pastor of a church, you're an oppressor, just be, simply by virtue of the fact <laughs> that that's what you do in mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. right? You see what I'm saying? There's, 
the, the gospel frees us to separate between identity and activity and mm-hmm. say, we need to repent of sins and of sin, but our identity is not something we'd repent of. You're, you're not a mm. bad person because you're a white male. That's an accident of your upbringing and your genetics and where you were born in the world. And, and that is, now you may live in a culture where white men have been oppressors. And so you need to acknowledge that, like you can't live in ignorance of that reality, mm-hmm. but, but mm-hmm. There, it's different to say that has been a part of our history and I need to acknowledge that and understand how that affects my world versus I'm inherently an oppressor just by my existence. Mm-hmm. Here's my, my main issue with the whole check your privilege piece. If you look at, if you look at Matthew 20 and how Jesus talked about using power, he wasn't there. Check your privilege is be guilty about the fact that you're a white man. Feel, feel, feel guilty about your power where Matthew 20 is no, use your power, use your privilege to serve. And that's motivated by a love for the other person. If I'm motivated by guilt, that's a horrible motivation. And, and, it, and it doesn't even really get at the heart of the gospel. Like Jesus used his power and his privilege to serve, to wash feet, to die, to, to, to love people, you know, radically. But he didn't do that out of guilt. So I, th- this whole check your privilege, because I've even seen this in some church dynamics that it, it, that's not the gospel. Like the gospel is lay down your life in love and service, not because I feel guilty, but because I actually, I'm a steward. Like God's given me the position of a pastor. I use this power to serve and to love other people as a steward. So, so that's what, that's what, so, so the church acknowledged sin, but then also acknowledge like Jesus didn't say be guilty to feel guilty about your power and, and get rid of it. It's Mm. use it. Mm-hmm. Use it in a way that that uh, serves mm-hmm. and loves others. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the danger of as intersectionality or these themes become more prevalent in our culture, it really does make us fearful of power, right? It makes us like well, I, <laughs> I don't want power because I don't want to abuse it. And I it, like that's a that's a wise disposition to have because we're sinful and we're all prone to that. But I think, as you say, Chris, the, the gospel invites us to say, no, 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 whatever power and opportunity I have, the call of the gospel is to use that for the good of others and for the glory of God, mm-hmm. not to back away from it because it's, you know, possibly prone to abuse, but, but rather to embrace whatever opportunity, whatever power I'm given in life and, and use it to further the good of humanity. Mm-hmm. So as we said at the beginning, this is one of those... Um, as a Christian, you need to know that this stuff is out there. And again, you know, coll- little private colleges in Vermont are not, you know, down the street in Omaha. And so, we, you know, this isn't necessarily something you're going to run into frequently, but it does color civic discourse. Um, it does affect more and more, even what you're starting to see in media um, and in popular culture. And so it's just wise for us to be able to see the dynamics of sort of this neo-Marxist way of looking at the world, to be able to understand a little bit of the background and history of where it came from, and to be able to understand how the gospel both critiques it, where it needs to be critiqued, um, and sees the common grace in it where there is common grace to see. But I think to live as thoughtful Christians means we need to be aware of this, know that it's out there and, uh, and have some understanding of how it affects dialogue. If you have thoughts, critiques, or um, ways for us to take this conversation further, as you've heard from recent podcasts, we really enjoy getting feedback from our listeners in, in ways that further the conversation. So if there's things from this dialogue today that you'd like to 
press further or object to or ask for further clarity on, um, hit us up so that we know and so that we can take the conversation in whatever direction would be most helpful. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own churches for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that the things that we've talked about might also be helpful to you as you minister in your own context. We ask that you jump on iTunes or Google Play, however you listen to the Wednesday Conversation, and give us a nice review. Give us, give us five stars, maybe four and a half stars. But just tell the world how much you like this podcast, share it with your friends and family, and we hope that you join us next Wednesday for another Wednesday Conversation.